Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you would like to know more about Walter's music or, or listen to Walter's music, he's a wonderful singer-songwriter. I love the work he does, and I bet you will too, WalterParks.com. JamesNave.com if you'd like to visit my website, or if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, Nave at JamesNave.com. I would love to hear from you. What's your story? What are you up to as the seasons change and your life unfolds? Davine Dial, manager of WPVM-FM, I'd like to thank you for holding the radio station together. We wouldn't be able to make any of this happen if you weren't there taking care of business, all the stuff that is required to make a community radio station sing, play, and broadcast around the world. And I would also like to tell you, if you'd like to join me on Saturday morning, for a writing workshop gathering, I offer something called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. Every Saturday with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, we gather at noon Eastern Time, 10 Mountain Time, and we write. And we write for an hour. And it's fun and nobody gets all fussed. And we generate some interesting material and, and read it aloud. You don't have to, but if you are so moved, you certainly can. We read it aloud and off we go. So it's only an hour. Imaginativestorm.com. Imaginativestorm.com. You can join us by just clicking the Zoom link above the fold when you come to imaginativestorm.com. And so today I'm back at the desk, back at the mic with somebody that I've just met briefly. Her name is Nikki Robinson. And the reason I met Nikki is because I've been involved with uh, a good friend of mine, Barry Barton, who is the director of the TEDx Talks in Asheville. And she's putting together a whole series of TED talkers and TED speakers. And Nikki's one of those. So I was really happy to meet Nikki on the initial call she made trying to find her way into one of the slots at TEDx Asheville. Lo and behold, Nikki made the cut. She's one of the TEDx speakers. She has a great project she's working on. It's all about animals crossing highways. Now, I don't think she's working on animals hitchhiking with backpacks. This is more animals hitchhiking their way across the highway. They're hitchhiking with each other on bridges and underpasses and that sort of thing. So that's one of the many projects that Nikki works on. She's in love with animals. She's based in Western North Carolina and her focus is there. Nikki Robinson, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Good morning, Nave. Thank you so much for having me here this morning. Well, it's a real pleasure to connect with you. And when we were talking during the time you were really auditioning for the TEDx Asheville talk, you brought this amazing enthusiasm for the animals trying to negotiate their way across all of these highways and byways that we have made. And I have traveled millions of miles over the American highways 
in in my lifetime as a traveling poet performing all over the country. And of course, I've noticed the animals and I've seen them approach and try to cross the highway, certainly see animals run over, turtles, coyotes, raccoons, you name it, possums, squished on the road. So they don't want to be squished. So tell us about what got you so interested in animals? Why are you such an animal advocate? I think it's just something that I have innately grown up with from childhood, being interested in animals and the outdoors. Really, it shaped my entire career path. And I've been a conservationist ever since graduating from school um, and working in Western North Carolina, specifically in land conservation and, and wildlife conservation and so it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Any way that I can work to better our environment and, and make it a healthier place for all species is something that I've been striving for throughout my career. Um, so I am sort of a recent addition to the organization that I work for now. It's called the Wildlands Network. It's more than North Carolina. It's a continental movement. The organization works to restore, rewild, and reconnect our fragmented landscapes. And we do this trying to reconnect wildways. So these ancient migration pathways that animals need and use to move from one place to another in order to find food, shelter, water, mates. Movement is all a part of life. When you add in the human component to that, we also depend on movement. And we have built this really extensive network of roads to facilitate movement of humans, goods, services, all for our survival. And when these roads were built, and constructed all over our landscapes, we weren't really thinking about the impacts of wildlife movement with these roads. So we're essentially cross-cutting a lot of these once unfragmented landscapes, these huge tracts of land that animals grew accustomed to using and it's imprinted in their DNA and they, they pass on this knowledge to their offspring. And so they know where to travel to find the resources that they need. So in the grand scheme of time, roads are relatively new. You know, these animals have been using this landscape way before we have been here and our human impacts with development. So they don't really know um, how to get across roads or why they're there or why they're so scary and loud. That's why we have such a roadkill problem. That's why mortality rates are, are high and increasing with our wildlife vehicle collisions. So in order to protect these large tracts of land, we have to do something about reconnecting over these roads. And so one of the methods is to build crossings to reestablish these natural corridors that the animals have been using for so long. So finding a safe way for them to get from one side of the road to the other, and there are many different strategies and, and ways that we can help facilitate this. 
but it's also dependent on the animal too. You know, they all have their different needs and their different modes of travel. So it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. We're looking at specifically for the project I'm involved with here in Western North Carolina, we're looking at white-tailed deer, black bear, and elk, just because they're the large animals that have really high rates of wildlife vehicle collisions. And it's really dangerous for humans when they're trying to cross the road and humans are also trying to use the highways. It's more than just those three focal animals. Like you said, it's turtles. We're the salamander capital here in the Southern Appalachians. We have so many salamander types. The biodiversity in general here in Western North Carolina is so incredible that it makes sense that this is a place that an organization dedicated to reconnecting our wild places would focus on the Southern Appalachian Mountains. So the big problem is the traffic movement that does the animals in and maybe the barriers that go up around the roads. If the traffic just disappeared, I imagine the animals wouldn't mind just walking across the road or does the road itself hinder the animals? The road is definitely a hindrance to some species. A lot of interstates now have those Jersey barriers that are probably about three feet tall. We've seen with our wildlife camera footage, animals trying to negotiate those barriers. Sometimes an adult black bear can climb over those Jersey barriers, but a cub might have trouble because it's so small. And if the cub has trouble, the mother will stop and try to help the cub. And that's when you get the really dangerous situations of the bears being in the road. Deer and elk, they can jump over a lot of those barriers. So if they navigate successfully, they can get over them, blocking other smaller animals. Um, and, and not to mention aquatic passage. A lot of times these highways have these culverts running underneath them, which are these you know large tube-like tunnels that run water underneath the highway um, to mitigate storm water and rainwater. A lot of times these culverts don't have the infrastructure that the animals can use um, to get through safely or comfortably. So a lot of the work is also looking at these structures and trying to visualize how they can be reconstructed in a way that animals will want to use them more frequently so they can go under instead of making that decision of wanting to cross at grade level where the road is. So you have these streams that are running under all of these roads and the streams have the salamanders in them and the streams also have the fish. So I would think that these streams under the road become so disrupted that the salamanders and the fish have to stop there. They can't go through all of that, or can they work their way to the other side, but in a clumsy fashion? It's a case-by-case situation. If it's an open stream bed where the stream can naturally run underneath these roads and tunnels, then yeah, a lot of times animals can successfully connect to the other side of the highway. Um, a lot of these culverts are, are raised up so you can imagine water's running out and then cascading down. And so if animals are trying to go upstream, they can't enter the culvert that way because it's raised above the stream bed, so they can't reach it. So it's creating this barrier effect. And when animals have this barrier effect, they don't have the ability to 
find mates in other parts of the streams. And so their, their genetic pool is much smaller because they have to breed with the animals that are in close proximity to them. So a fish can come downstream and go over the little waterfall under the interstate. But when the fish wants to turn around and go back and see its mother or whatever, if fish do that, it can't come back. So it's, it's one way trip. Pretty much. Yeah. If, if they even make that first journey at all. So then in a sense, you split the stream by this interstate or the road and that creates two gene pools, very different situations for the fish, the salamanders, and the other water creatures that live in these streams. So, Essentially, yeah. So it's fragmentation at its worst. You talked about the animals and the humans crashing together. The animal runs out in front of the car and hits the car. The car hits the animal. What kind of repercussions happen when those two situations occur, the animal and the human? I would say there are a lot of repercussions. Nobody wants to hit an animal with their car. And for this project that I'm involved with specifically, we're talking about this stretch of roadway right outside Great Smoky Mountain National Park. It's Interstate 40 and it runs through the Pigeon River Gorge. I'm sure you're familiar with the I-40 corridor and driving through that very narrow valley. It's a highway that's always heavily trafficked. There are tractor trailers going down it all the time to Tennessee and back. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I drive through, I am gripped, trying to focus on the road, worried about the trucks around me. And it cuts through this really beautiful landscape, the Pigeon River Gorge. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. It's Western North Carolina at its finest. So not only are you not enjoying the view because you're focused on driving so quickly through the gorge, but you're kind of missing the opportunity to enjoy the natural resources that are surrounding you, this area of public land that people flock to every year to visit, to enjoy its natural resources, to see the wildlife. But you don't want to see the wildlife coming at you through your windshield. That is like worst case scenario. Hitting a deer or another animal with your car is not only traumatic, it's going to damage your vehicle. The cost of running into a deer is about $6,000 worth of damage. And now that we have elk reintroduced in the Smokies, you do not want to hit one of those animals. They're upwards of 1,200 pounds. And so running into an elk is like $17,000 worth of damage. You're going to total your car. Annually across the country, we've been keeping up with wildlife vehicle collision statistics. And there are over 26,000 human injuries that are incurred from these collisions and not to mention 200 fatalities a year. So it's dangerous for the animals. It's dangerous for humans. I know when I've driven I-40 through the Pigeon River Gorge, it's exactly what you say. It's really tight. And those trucks do move fast. I think they're supposed to drive in one lane and go 45. They tend to 
do that occasionally because the road demands it. Sometimes you can't go but 45, but if they can speed up, they'll speed up. And then the cars are in the passing lane trying to get by the trucks. And I've driven that road who knows how many times over the years. And I'm sure I have a million miles of driving under my belt because I've traveled so much and made my living as a, as I said, as a traveling poet. So I've covered a lot of miles. I have a great deal of experience driving and I spook, I tighten up, I take deep breaths and feel the encroachment of those trucks when I go through the gorge. So no matter how much experience you have, it's still a challenge to drive through that. And you're right. You don't see the beauty because you want to avoid falling under the trucks. Now, all due respect to the truck drivers, they're professionals. They know what they're doing. They've done this a lot. They really know how to make room for the cars to go through. Nonetheless, it's still tight. Right. And we rely on the goods and services that they're transporting back and forth. So yeah. we need them, them very yeah. much. If you think that you are nervous driving through a stretch of roadway like that, imagine how the animals also feel. It's a stressful environment for them as well. With our research, we put out these wildlife cameras within the roadway and within the sides of forested land that run along the highway. And we can watch what they're doing and how they're reacting to the road. And a lot of times we'll see animals approach and they're looking down over the ridgeline. They see the lights, they hear the horns, they hear the big trucks. They turn around and they run away. They don't want anything to do with it. And we know from wildlife biologists research tracking black bears, we know that now that their heart rates increase as they get closer to the roadway and they hear these these loud noises so we know that it's stressful for the environment and for for our animals do you think they ever figure out how to negotiate it or are they always spooked by this you know animals are really smart so they will find a way and that's what our research project entails so our, our coalition, the Smoky Safe Passage Coalition, has been working on this two-year research project. And so we have scientists with my organization, Wildlands Network, and the National Parks Conservation Association. Um, our, our wildlife scientists have deployed these cameras near these structures that we know animals could potentially use to get over and under the highway successfully. We've put them up along the roadway to track their movements along the road. And we've also done roadkill surveys. And we've also collared elk with GPS units so that we can track their movement. So this two-year research project has given us a lot of information about where the animals are actually successfully crossing and also where they're not successfully crossing. And so we've seen them use these culverts that I spoke of earlier, you know, the round tunnels that allow water to transport through. Um, some animals will climb up into the culverts and walk through the tunnels. We have animals using roadways underneath the interstate 
Um, so if there's an exit ramp that takes you off of the interstate, uh, and then there's a road that travels underneath, animals have figured out that is a safer route. Our white-tailed deer and our elk will use those a lot. We have a lot of footage of bobcats that are successfully navigating across the highway. And there's also a natural feature that already exists on I-40, and that is the double tunnel. If you recall ever driving through the double tunnel, we know animals are using that as a natural land bridge to go over. And so that's one of the ways that they have been successful. So the double tunnels on I-40, I think they're two, maybe three, I believe two. And those tunnels go under mountains. So the animals have figured out they can go over to where the tunnels go under the mountains and just cross over the mountains. So maybe they are making a new animal path over the mountains, making the detour from the old animal path, I would think. If I were an animal, I might do that. A lot of animals follow the landscape. So they like to follow ridgelines. They like to use valleys. They like the path of least resistance. When I think about animals, I often will think of myself as part of that group. I'm not exclusive of it. I'm within it. So I do try to find the path of least resistance. And I do try to figure out what's safe. And I try to avoid crossing the interstate. I wouldn't want to try to cross I-40 going up through the Pigeon River Gorge. It would be terrifying. So I can imagine how an elk, a bear, a deer, a bobcat, a uh, a raccoon would feel. Right. So one of the mechanisms we use to help facilitate these animals to want to use these structures is fencing. So if you have wildlife crossings, you have to pair them with fencing to funnel animals towards them so that they'll be more inclined to use them. Another big part of this project is identifying where exactly these wildlife vehicle collision hotspots are located and where we can be most efficient with installing or repairing existing crossings to help facilitate movement. And then where fencing can go up to help animals not want to cross at road grade and actually follow the fencing down along the roadway until they can find one of these safe crossings to use. So are you working with construction companies or organizations that build bridges to create bespoke animal paths that will take the animals right through to where they want to go, or maybe even walkways above the highway? Although I can't imagine you would put a walkway above I-40, so you must have to go under. And are you working with existing passageways or are you constructing new walkways for the animals. We're wrapping up our research findings as we speak. Our scientists are analyzing all of the data that we've collected over the past two years with these camera and GPS collars and, and roadkill surveys. And so once that data is analyzed, we'll know where these structures will be most efficient and we can give recommendations to the North Carolina Department of Transportation and the Tennessee Department of Transportation and say, this is where these structures will really make a difference. 
So your argument might be for putting money in the direction of those structures. Hey, if you build these structures, the cars won't crash. We won't back traffic up. We won't stop commerce. People will survive longer because they didn't get in an accident. And imagine how much money they're going to save when they miss the deer, 6,000, 8,000 with the elk, 16,000. Would the government structures that would build that be inclined to such an argument? Yes. And that's what's so exciting about this project on I-40 is that our DOTs have been wonderful to work with and they're excited about incorporating some of these crossing structures into their plans. And so it's been a whole collaborative effort. There are more than 20 stakeholders involved in seeing this project to fruition. So it's people with all sorts of expertise, engineers, planners, transportation experts, wildlife experts, community leaders. It's a whole group of people that are making this project possible. And without the work of the collaboration, it wouldn't be possible. So I'm really grateful to be a part of it and to have all these people on board that really want to see this project happen. And the really exciting part about it is that this is just the beginning. Once we have successfully implemented these wildlife crossings in I-40, we can use it as an example, and it can be a role model for other transportation projects throughout North Carolina, throughout Southeast, throughout the entire country. You're starting to see them pop up more and more. It's really exciting that North Carolina can be a leader in this process. You're influencing the whole world, I would think, because highways run everywhere and animals are, are everywhere. Animals don't think about state lines or borders. They go over to Canada or down to Mexico or wherever they go and migrate great distances. This work that you're doing, you're saying it will contribute to people figuring out how to make it easier for wildlife throughout the world, wherever a highway exists. Is that is that already happening? Are there other things going on in the country with animal bridges? Yes. Out west, there are several big wildlife structures that are already in existence um, that have seen a lot of attention over the past few years. Out west, they have a lot of larger animals moving in large groups. So big herds of elk, pronghorn, and so this was a really urgent situation for, for a lot of those interstates out west. Also in Canada, Canada is a great leader up in Banff National Park. They've installed these really fantastic wildlife overpasses that have gained global attention. We're really lucky to have them influence us and teach us what they've learned through this process so that we can model after it. So you started this work when you were young, growing up in North Carolina. I love your enthusiasm and, and your engagement and your professional curiosity and all the research and the leadership role you're taking with the, with the animals. You started this somewhere long ago. Do you remember the first skunk you noticed, the first possum that walked past you when you were a little girl? Growing up in Charlotte, I believe you said? Yeah, I grew up in Concord, right outside of Charlotte. 
I always find a way to bring it back to turtles. It was a sea turtle that inspired my curiosity for conservation. I was a communications major at Clemson University for my undergrad, and I went on a study abroad trip down to Dominica, just a small island in the Lesser Antilles. And it was more of a soul-searching journey for me. I didn't really feel super committed to a communications major and was looking for, for something else. And we took a walk on the beach one night and we got to witness this leatherback sea turtle, which if you know anything about sea turtles, they are the biggest sea turtle in the world. This one was probably a thousand pounds. So this female turtle had crawled up onto the beach to lay her eggs on the beach. We were with a, a conservation group, so it was very professional and hands-off. We didn't disturb, but there were some people there, some locals. It was their tradition and culture for, for many, many years to harvest turtle eggs for food. And so here I am, young college student, obsessed with this gigantic turtle that's in front of me and seeing some of the human conflicts arise around this turtle. It was captivating, honestly, to hear the conversations between the, the conservation biologist and the native who was using a local practice that had been passed down through generations. And it really started to make me think about the human dimensions of conservation and how our global impacts are affecting not only the environment, but ancient culture and practice. And I thought, this is something that I can get into. And it has been on the forefront of my mind ever since. I'm obsessed with it. I can't get enough of it. So the thousand pound sea turtle was what got you started with this. When you realized you had this big burning interest, did you shift your major from communications to something else? I did. I changed it to conservation biology immediately after this trip. But I do really want to give credit to my communications background because it has taught me so many lessons and tools with how to connect with people and to tell the story of conservation in a meaningful way that will connect people to nature. So science communication is a really important piece of this puzzle. And we could do all this great research and come up with all this data that's essentially going to solve the world's problems. But if we can't communicate it effectively to the general public, to our government leaders, that it's a good idea, then that information isn't really worth much. So science communication is a huge part of that. I agree. And storytelling certainly fits into communication. I'm thinking as you're speaking about the animals traveling around, I'm talking to you from Taos, New Mexico, and you're in Asheville, North Carolina, both places full of, of wildlife, different regions that grow in different ways. And when you were talking about the animals trying to find their way across the road, I was thinking about yesterday morning. I woke up and it was just at dawn and I opened my door and 
one deer after the other, walking down the driveway like they owned the place. In fact, they do, actually. And they were moving along an animal path, and they were very happy, and they looked over at me, no hurry, as if, well, good morning. And then they kept on moving. And I have walked down the road, dirt road to a paved road, and I started to notice where the deer herd will go across the road. And of course, they can jump quite high and they just jump across the road. And then there's the little path that goes down. And I'll bet that path has been there for ages. So when you put the story around something that, you know, like the deer walking past the house, and then you take that same experience and you think, how would I feel if I had to cross an interstate and not a driveway? I begin to understand more and more about what you're working with. That's a great point. I just want to highlight the importance of this work now as this region in Western North Carolina continues to grow and continues to develop. People are moving to this state at a very high rate and I don't blame them. It's a great place to live. We've seen record numbers of tourism in the past two years, you know, higher than we've ever seen before and, and people relocating. That's going to continue to be an issue that we have to address with our planning and our regional development. We also have to think about how the climate is changing and how that is going to affect where people need to move animals and where they need to move. So this whole idea of movement just keeps popping up. And we have to find ways that we can keep the channels open so that as our climate changes and it changes our lifestyle and our, and our ways of life, we have those channels open for our safety and our survival. And as you think about all of these propositions, how are you preparing for your TED Talk? What do you want people to hear when you go on that TED stage, I, I suspect they would like to know about the thousand pound turtle. I think that's a compelling image. I think at the end of the day, it's realizing that we all come from this earth. And eventually when we're not here anymore, we're going back. And so while we're here, we have to stop thinking about ourselves as disconnected from nature and more a part of nature. So how can we shift our way of living? How can we shift our lifestyle to be more connected with our natural environment around us? I've often thought of the natural environment walking in the cities. I lived in New York for quite a while. I've been there a great deal over the years. And when you first think of New York City, you think of buildings and you think concrete, sidewalks, busy people, subways, et cetera, et cetera. You don't necessarily stop and think about how much wild nature is in Manhattan until you get up above the city in a building and you look down and you see all of these trees behind the buildings. And then when you realize that New York was built on a swamp, there's a place called Spring Street. And underneath Spring Street are many springs that are still running, creeks that are running underneath New York. So it's impossible for us to really disconnect from nature physically 
it's really easy for us to disconnect psychologically and think we're not connected physically when no matter how tight things are within a city or a metro area, we're still in nature. The stars are still above us and the animals are still there, not so far away. I'm really fortunate to live in a place where I can get out and get that daily dose of nature. And one of my favorite things to do is to find a place where I can't see any human development around me at all. And just to think about our landscapes pre-humans and what that must have looked like, the animals and the plants and all the life forms that thrived before our time. And it's just fun to think about all the things that are happening out in the woods that you don't realize are happening around you. And it's really a very busy place. So you can be out in the woods. It can be very quiet and it's a great place to find solitude. But then it's also fun to think about how busy it is and how many things are happening out there and you don't even realize it. Well, everything is moving and everything is eating and everything is trying to survive. And no matter how often you go out, you're always likely to see something surprising, something you didn't expect just popping up to the left or to the right. It's important that we can conserve these great wildlife and natural resources so that the next generation can enjoy them. If I didn't have the woods in my backyard growing up to run and play in, I don't think I would have been as invested in the natural environment as I am today. So having that, having those opportunities and those experiences for young children is so important. Well, Nikki, I really appreciate you coming on this show and helping us out and helping us understand more about how this works. If people would like to learn more about your work and more about animals crossing highways and what they can do to be involved, how would they go about that? Well, I would say if you're interested in the um, the local I-40 so Smoky Safe Passage Wildlife Crossings Project, you can visit smokiesafepassage.org. And that is specifically about our work with the coalition on the I-40 project with our animal crossings. And I will say, if you're traveling on I-40 in the next six months or so, there is a, a project happening on the ground now. There is a bridge replacement at the Harmon Den exit on Interstate 40. So that's in the North Carolina stretch as you're going to Tennessee. The North Carolina Department of Transportation is replacing that bridge right now. So they're diverting traffic off of the interstate onto the exit ramp and then back on to the interstate. So there are some congestion issues while they replace the bridge. However, after they're done with the bridge replacement, they are incorporating a wildlife underpass underneath that bridge. And so it will be the first of hopefully many of these crossings that will now be incorporated as the Department of Transportation fixes and, and replaces a lot of these outdated structures that have been on their list to-do list for a while. Um, so while they're reconstructing these bridges, we're saying, hey, while you're out there redoing this bridge, how about incorporating a wildlife crossing structure into the plan? 
And if my memory serves me, the Harmon Dam exit is about 50 miles from Asheville. And when you exit there, there's a dirt road that runs beside a fairly large river. And that dirt road takes you way up into the mountains, the area where you'll see balls covering the mountains, vast meadows. And I believe that road goes over into the Marshall area, which would somehow eventually lead you back to Asheville. That road must have emerged from the animal paths that ran along the river. So that's a perfect place to create a path for the animals. It is a wild raging stream that runs down that dirt road. And I've driven up that a bit of a bit over the years. So I do remember that exit. It's a significant exit for the animals and for the humans. That's a lot of public land in that area. And so with these crossing structures, one really important element that I don't want to forget is the importance of continued land protection in this area because we have Great Smoky Mountain National Park. We have Forest Service land and and other public lands, Pisgah National Forest. It's really important to not forget how much we need more public land, more conserved forests, so that once these animals do have the ability to cross back and forth safely under or over the highway, they have a safe place and suitable habitat waiting for them on the other side. What we don't want to happen is to implement all of these measures to put in these corridors and these crossings, animals get to the other side of the interstate and there's a new neighborhood development or a strip mall or a parking lot at their destination. So making sure that there's suitable habitat, the resources that they need is really important to think about in in sort of the grand scheme of things. Well, let's think about that and let's 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 think about that. And I hope you have a, a great TED talk. And I've loved what you had to say today. And I suspect some of what you mentioned in our conversation will emerge on the stage at, at the TEDx Asheville talk that you're going to give very soon. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about the protection and conservation of wildways across North America, like if you want to look at the the Western Wild Way and the Pacific Wild Way, there are listeners out West. Wildlands Network is not only focusing on this Eastern Wild Way connection, but also Western Wild Way through the Rockies and the Pacific. So we're looking at these three major wildlife corridors to essentially conserve and reconnect so that it's this large landscape conservation approach. Nikki Robinson, thank you ever so much for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great talking with you. And good luck on your TED Talk. Oh, thank you. And there you go, my friends, Nikki Robinson, talking all about animals crossing the roads of America and roads all over the world for that matter. We've been building roads since the beginning of time. And now that our road building is a lot more sophisticated, the animals have a lot more to deal with. 
You may remember me mentioning in the conversation with Nikki that I'm familiar with that stretch of road, I-40, through the Pigeon River Gorge. And if you have ever traveled it, you know what Nikki's talking about, the beauty of the land, the way the mountains slope up and over and roll beyond the eyesight and how the river runs beside the interstate. And it's just absolutely beautiful. And of course, those tunnels are something to bring the curiosity up a bit, especially when you're driving, maybe in the rain, raining on I-40, Pigeon River Gorge, you approach the tunnels, maybe late afternoon, dusk perhaps, lights on, and when you enter the tunnel, a bit of road rain goes with you on your tires, and then suddenly in the middle of the interior of the tunnel, it's all dry, and then you emerge again into the rain and have to slow down so you can move through the mountains watching the afternoon shade itself into the evening. All the while you were driving alongside the semi-trucks coming and going wherever they come and go all over America. They too try to go slow in the rain down those crooked roads that are rather wide but still nonetheless crooked sloping through the mountains. I love this notion of the travel. And so when Nikki was talking about I-40 through the Pigeon River Gorge, I had visions like that of the times I've driven back and forth from Asheville all the way out to Taos or from Asheville over to Tennessee and up to St. Louis and over to Denver or maybe St. Louis on up to Chicago. Who knows where you go when you get on the road sometimes, even though you have a plan and I usually stick to my plans. Sometimes things just happen along the way. And that's what I, I love about about the road and what I love about I-40 and why I'm most particularly thankful that Nikki pointed out the significance of the road and also the significance of the animal paths. In a sense, I-40 is my animal road. It's the road I travel as an animal in my car driving along. Now, there was a time when I hitchhiked I-40. I remember the summer of 1970, I was 20 years old, and I decided I wanted to go to Denver to meet my friend John Van Hasselt, who was coming up from Mexico in a little Volkswagen bus with, you guessed it, a peace sign painted on the back. John had been down in Mexico climbing and going to school, and I had just finished two years at a little junior college called Brevard College. I was at a bit of a loss for what to do. My grades had not been that good. I was too restless, didn't really know how to study, so at the end of my two years, I didn't have anything to do except worry about being drafted into the Vietnam War because I was a perfect physical specimen. There was nothing wrong with me. 5'8", 160 pounds, good shape and ready to go to war. I wasn't ready to go to war. The draft board was ready to have me go to war. So there it was, summer 1970. I didn't know what to do, so I decided, well, I'm going to hitchhike to Denver, Colorado, and I'm going to meet my buddy John Van Hasselt, and we'll just hang out together and see what happens. I wouldn't call it the greatest strategic planning on Earth, but that was what I did when I was 20. And so in June of 1970, a bright summer 
day, summer morning, my mother, who was worried about her son, young as I was, hitchhiking all the way out west to Denver, Colorado. I'd never been out west. I didn't know how far Denver was, and I didn't know anything about hitchhiking. All I knew was I wanted to go to the Canton exit west of Asheville on I-40 and hitchhike through the Pigeon River Gorge on to Nashville, Tennessee, then turn north to St. Louis, hit I-70, and just skedaddle across to to Denver. It was about 1,500 miles between Asheville and Denver, and I was ready to do it, naive enough to get out there and hitchhike. As it turned out, back in the 70s, there were a lot of people out there hitchhiking. Sometimes you would come to an exit and have to wait your turn to catch rides. Also, people were giving rides back then, so the culture was very different than it is now. Not that hard to get a ride. Thumb out, car stops, hop in and say hello to the stranger who stopped to give you a ride. Fingers crossed you're hoping to go 500 miles or maybe more if you get really lucky. So I don't remember the first person who gave me a ride, but I didn't have to wait long there at the Canton exit before somebody stopped and off I went. And then that person dropped me off, and another one picked me up, and then another. And pretty soon, a guy named Wayne, who was driving a Pontiac Le Mans with a fairly large engine in it, he was in military intelligence. He picked me up, and we drove all the way to St. Louis. And on the way to St. Louis, it was a long ride. Wayne tried to recruit me to go into military intelligence and go to college campuses and spy on the radical students who were causing all kinds of disruption for the U.S. government. Wayne was a rather clean-cut fellow, as you might expect, since he was in military intelligence, and he had a pistol in his glove box. He was very proud of the pistol in his glove box. It was there in case we ran into any kind of problems. Well, I'd never used a pistol. I assumed he knew how to use it. So I just closed the glove box back when he showed me the pistol and hoped, well, that will never be a tool I need to use. And as it turned out, I never have used a gun in any form or fashion. I've never owned one, except when I was a boy and I was 12, 13, and 14, and I had a shotgun and I hunted in my little neighborhood, which was out in the country on Brevard Road, not too far from I-40. But that's another story. So Wayne dropped me off in St. Louis, and from St. Louis, I caught rides across the country, and I landed in Boulder, Colorado. And the last ride I caught was with a group of of hippies. The fellow who was driving the yet another Volkswagen van, driving this Volkswagen van, had just gotten out of the Air Force. He was letting his hair grow. He had his little Air Force jacket on, but he didn't have a uniform on. And he was picking up people as he went along the way. And so I rode with him and I was reading some novel. I don't remember what the novel was. And my goodness, what a glorious thing. Young fellow like me looking out on the Kansas wheat and the gradual inclining land that was headed to the Rockies. I had no idea how big the Rockies were, but I was excited to see them. And when we did arrive and I saw the Rockies, I was stunned at the height. And I was so excited because, oh my gosh, snow 
in the Rockies in June. I didn't realize that was an ordinary thing for the Rockies in June, but at the time I thought it was rather remarkable. So I managed to land in Boulder and we went swimming in the reservoir and we camped out up in the mountains and hung out in the park and did all these things that one did in the 70s. I eventually made my way to Denver and I did rendezvous with my buddy John who had driven his Volkswagen up from Mexico. Now the funny thing was the Volkswagen with the peace sign on the back didn't work very well because it broke down in front of his girlfriend's house where I was staying. I'd arrived a couple of days prior. John arrived, and so we kicked around Denver for a little bit, maybe a couple of days or so. It was good to see John. John was a Dutch fellow who had been at Brevard College when I was there, and he was the Dutch uh, foreign exchange student, the only one Brevard had at the time. So John and I had gotten to go know each other really well, and of course it was worth the trip for me to hitchhike out to Denver. Good excuse to go west, good excuse to visit with my buddy John. So the next morning, while John was still sleeping, I get up early every day even now, I got up early and just started walking around the neighborhood, and it was around 9 o'clock in the morning, and I popped into an Army-Navy store, and I went to the back of the Army Navy store. And the reason I went into the Army Navy store was because I was worried about being drafted. And I thought, well, at least I can do is go in and take a look at what's in there and maybe get used to the idea of being drafted into the Army. And like Oh, so many people back then, I was terrified of going to Vietnam and being part of a war that I knew was really not a just war. So really, now that I think about it, is there really ever a just war? I imagine most soldiers coming back from any war will not tell you they thought the war was just, maybe a few. Anyway, I was terrified of going to Vietnam. I walked into the Army Navy store. I went to the back and I opened a footlocker full of bayonets and I lifted one up and held it in my hand and I imagined what it would be like having a battle with somebody face to face, me with a bayonet and they might have a bayonet too or whatever they had, fighting hand to hand and eventually either I'm killed or I killed them. It was a rather horrific vision as you might imagine me standing there in the store and when I put that bayonet back in the box, closed the box, and started walking out the store past all those used uniforms with stripes on them and dust on them and other paraphernalia from the Army and Navy experiences of many people, I thought, you know, I can't do this. I can't go to Vietnam. And that was when I decided I would apply for my status as a conscientious objector, which I did. So I mentioned it to John later that day, and he thought it was a good idea. I told him, well, I have to go back to North Carolina to do that. I have to go back to Asheville. And so I went back to North Carolina. John went back to Mexico, and I applied for my conscientious objector status, and I was awarded the objector status, and I served two years alternate service in a nursing home in Charlotte, North Carolina called Wesley Nursing Center. And I did it honorably. I finished. My obligation was over, and I was 22, and on I went with my life. And the road was the reason why I did all that, I-40, Pigeon River Gorge. So I was yet one more animal making a journey from point A to point B. And since then, I've always loved the road, and I was so glad to hear Nikki's stories about how the other animals are be, uh, being accommodated on the road. And that's a good thing, I think. And with that note, 
we have now arrived at the very last bit of our show. And I would like to say thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, Fertile Ground, for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for the theme song. WalterParks.com. If you're interested in Walter's music, thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. We really do appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you. And if any of you would like to join me on Saturday morning for an imaginative storm writing session, I have such a thing with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We gather every Saturday morning and we write for an hour. The door is always open. We'd love to have you, imaginativestorm.com. And if you would like to reach out to me, you're more than welcome to do that, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I'm always available to talk. I would like to hear your story. If you think you might like to be on the show, please let me know. I would love to interview you. Again, it's nave at jamesnave.com. And so, thank you ever so much for listening to this show. I really, really do appreciate it. And if you're out there on that road and you see an animal getting ready to cross, pay close attention to it. Spring is coming. An animal you will see, maybe along the side of the road, a turtle, the box turtle trying to cross the road. So if you see a box turtle crossing the road, well, maybe, maybe take a little risk. Maybe pull over, look both ways, and go out in the road and help the box turtle across. I recommend doing this only if you're very, very safe. Don't just foolishly step out of the road and try to grab the box turtle, and suddenly something else happens along the way. So thank you again for being conscious of all the animals. Thank you ever so much for tuning in, and I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.